Welcome to episode 29 of Flying Podcast. In this, the third and final part of the DHFS podcasts, I'm interviewing Flight Lieutenant Stu Walker. Stu was the person that invited me down to RAF Shawbury, uh, arranged my visit to the base and the interviews with the uh, various personnel. Stu's story is quite an interesting one, and I thought it would make uh, a good standalone podcast in its own right. In this interview, Stu tells me how he wanted to join the RAF from an early age. Initially, his aim was to become a frontline fighter pilot, but you can hear how his military career progressed through flight training, flying Nimrods, doing a master's degree in aerosystems, uh, working in the flight information publications department, and then on to flying helicopters. As I say, an interesting progression, and well worth a listen for uh, anyone thinking of a career in the RAF. So, here is the interview with Stu. Hi, Stu. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, Steve. How are you? Good, fine, thank you. Uh, Right, why did you uh, choose to join the RAF? Well, I grew up in the Lake District um, on West Coast Cumbria and obviously spent a lot of time in the, the fells and hills, as you do. When I was very little, um, tornadoes used to fly through these hills and disappear past me and jaguars and harriers. And I thought, that looks like quite a hoot. I like the look of that as a job and talked to my dad about it. He didn't know anything about it or what to do or how to do it. And so um, a whole few years of research kicked in to find out more about what these people who fly these aircraft do. And as I discovered more and more about the pilots and then ultimately, of course, the RAF on top of it, um, albeit that the Navy have always had a small fixed-wing element as well, um, it always became the RAF because they had the greatest variety of fast jets to fly. So that was my ambition, to fly a fast jet and, and join the Air Force. Where did you want to end up, do you what sort of fast jets did you want to fly? Ultimately, I wanted to fly the Tornado F3, the air defence. Um, I always fighting myself, fan, fancy myself as a fighter pilot. Uh, I looked at the ground trade and all the, all the ground attack squadrons, of course, very attractive as well. But I don't know, just something about the fighter, fighter pilot, that always attracted me. Okay. Uh, what was your route then to the, the first posting with the RAF? Well, uh, a fairly long story. I, I was a scout... Um, initially, in my early days, and I then, when I got to the age of 15, quite late on really for most people, found out about a thing called the Air Training Corps, or yeah. Air Cadets. So I went along to my local Air Cadets, not realising there was one in, in my hometown, um, and realised, oh, this, this seems my kind of thing. Obviously they, they dressed in the same uniform and they used to go flying about once a month at RAF Leeming on the Chipmunk at the time. And so that quite attracted me as well. So I moved from scouts into the air training corps uh, at 15. And then obviously discovered more about the trade, the Royal Air Force, how it worked, how recruitment worked, uh, so on and so forth. And um, as I got to find out more and more, I thought, all right, let's get my A-levels done. So I did math, you know, basic maths, physics and chemistry A-levels. Uh, chose to go to university because I thought, well, actually, I'd quite like to be a test pilot in the future. And uh, everything I read about test piloting always said, you know, you need either an engineering degree or a physics degree, something science-based uh, that would prove your mettle for doing the course in the later years. So I thought, right, well, if, if I set up with that plan now, I'll go into university. So I went to Durham University and did a physics degree there. At the same time, found about the uh, University Air Squadron, uh, which was Northumbrian University Air Squadron, ironically based at RAF Leeming again. Uh, where I had been a few times previously with my air cadet time on the Chipmunk. Anyway, the, they had moved the, both the Air Experience flight and University Air Squadron flying to Bulldogs by this point. 
so I did some elementary flying training on the Bulldog whilst at university and uh, completed the degree at uni. Uh, lucky enough to have gained a what was called a RF bursary at the time. So they provided me with a lump sum each year and then offered me, obviously that came with a contract at the end of my university degree, to join the Royal Air Force as a pilot. So I started the Royal Air Force in 1997, initial officer training uh, at RAF Cranwell. That was um, a six-month course. Moved out of that into, um, to finish off actually, the way the system worked at the time, your elementary flying training was done at either University Air Squadron or it was done at Barkson Heath on what at the time was called JEFTS, Joint Elementary Flying Training Squadron. That's changed now to Defence Elementary Flying Training Squadron, still at Barkson Heath, but only the Navy and the Army partake of that now. The Royal Air Force uh, universally go to the elementary flying training schools, uh, three of which sit down the spine of England. There's one at Church Fenton, one at RAF Witten, and one at RAF Cranwell. So the system's changed a little bit since I went through it. But at the time, I hadn't finished my Bulldog training, so they sent me back to Northumbrian University Air Squadron to, to do what was called then top-up. So that was just to complete the syllabus, uh, get through the final handling test, as, as anyone will be familiar with who's, who's done any flying uh, of any sort. Got the final handling test completed in the latter part of 1998, um, and then there were a few months to to wait until my course started um, for multi-engine training, which is what I was selected for. So I went, again, thinking with a test pilot in, in the background, I went to RAF Boscombe Down uh, to hand, uh, hold, as we call it. Holding is that interim period between courses. Uh, I held at Boscombe Down in their operations and got to see how the test pilots lived their lives and what they did. Obviously, at this time, I, I'd always hoped to go down the fast jet route. Uh, unfortunately enough, I didn't do well enough for my elementary flying training to be selected for fast jet, uh, nor even rotary. I was selected for the last in the list, which is multi-engine training. So that started in January '99. Started RAF Cranwell uh, on the five flight. We did about it was between 20 and 30 hours. My memory escapes me exactly how many, but 20 and 30 hours on the five fly on what was called multi-engine lead-in, because it was accepted at the time that the Bulldog wasn't actually perfect preparation for the jet stream, which was our multi-engine aircraft at the time. The jet stream required you to do, I don't know if you, I think in a previous podcast, you talk about holds, you talk about instrument approaches and all mm -hmm. those kind of things and handling bigger aircraft. They, the multi-engine leading course is designed to take someone from a single-engine aircraft uh, operating effectively VFR, visual flight rules throughout, um, with a smattering of instrument flying ability, into someone who has a, got a, a consolidated instrument flying ability, the ability to do holds, the ability to do uh, non-precision approaches, uh, VORs, NDBs, and such like, on a single-engine aircraft, so you're not being, exp you know, your brain's not being mm -hmm. expanded too quickly. So it gives you a heads up on all those instrument flight techniques before you moved on to the jet stream. And I think we actually started flying on the jet stream uh, sometime. I think it was April or May '99 after we finished Firefly. The Jetstream course itself uh, was very enjoyable, actually. Um, there's a new course today, and there was a new course came in after our course had finished, which introduced an awful lot more formation elements, um, low-flying elements, aiming towards the what was coming in at the time was the C-130J, the new Hercules. So there was a lot more tactical element was introduced after my course had finished. And we were quite... Um, quite disappointed at the time because it looked like the new course was actually even better than the one we did. So ours was heavily into 
multi-engine operations, so crew resource management, uh, CRM, which has just changed its name really in the Air Force now to HF, Human Factors, is the new terminology. So we did a lot of CRM training, a lot of simulator training, a lot of ILSs and holds and uh, airways procedures and, and, and such like, all the usual things that anyone is familiar with. For example, airline flying will be mm -hmm. quite familiar with that. Um, Jetstream was a perfectly good aircraft to fly as well. In actual fact, I think for training aircraft, it wasn't the best thing to fly because it was almost too good for students. It had a funny thing on the uh, propellers, the way the Astasu engine worked with the propeller uh, on the jet stream. It had a thing called beta control. And with beta control, effectively in the circuit, you could set a certain speed. And, you know, I take the analogy too far, but you could almost do pretty much anything with the, um, with the control column up, down, left or right, and actually the beat control handled your speed throughout. So it handled its speed all the way around the circuit, pretty much no matter what you did, yeah. uh, which I think training is not what you need. You're, in training you need an aircraft which you're constantly yeah. fighting to yeah. give you the, the best ability. So sure enough, finished that course, and, and about halfway through Jetstream, I'd looked at all the multi-engine fleet of aircraft and, and tried to work out where I think I was best placed to be. And the one that just kept screaming out to me as... as attractive was the Nimrod and whilst I had experience of VC-10s from Air Cadets and Hercules from Air Cadets bizarre, I actually didn't have much experience of the Nimrod operations uh, but when I heard about what the Nimrod did it kind of went back into that, remember that I said about being a fighter pilot it seemed the Nimrod required pilots who were a bit more flexible in thought um, than for example, flying a Hercules at low level down a valley, there's pretty much only one way you can go. You have to fly down that valley. Um, and I thought of that as almost constraining me rather than the free thought of hunting a submarine underwater. Yep. Um, I could think more like fight, the ability to outthink the submarine. I, I was attracted to all that kind of thing. And again, I, I had heard on the grapevine from my time at Boscombe Down that a lot of people seemed to tend to go to test piloting from Nimrods. It seemed to suit that sort of pattern. So that's what I selected, and um, lucky enough, that's what I was chosen for. So January 2000, I moved up to Kinloss in uh, Morisha, on the edge of the uh, Mori Firth. Uh, beautiful location, just to the uh, east of Inverness, just to the north of the Cairngorms. Absolutely beautiful um, place to live. And having come from the Lake District, you know, that kind of environment yeah. suited me down to the ground. So I started on 42 Reserve Squadron, as it was called, and still is today, the Nimrod Operational Conversion Unit. Did six months on the Operational Conversion Unit, learning to fly the aircraft. Um, obviously, the big step up for me and my colleagues, this was the first jet-engined aircraft we'd learned to fly. In the good old days of training, you would have gone to the Tucano, or prior to that, the Jet Provost. You'd have learned to start going around 240 knots, before at some point you got the ultimate chop thing, as we call it, being chopped, i.e. you weren't good enough to go the fast jet stream, so you were chopped to a different uh, type of aircraft. Uh, we, didn't do Nimrod, uh, we didn't do Tucano and we didn't do Jet Provost. We were sent all the way through from the Bulldog propeller to the jet stream propeller, albeit turboprop, but it was still propeller, to a four-engine jet aircraft, where all of a sudden you had to think between 10 and 20 seconds ahead of the aircraft because if you pushed those throttles forward and you wanted the power instantly, it wasn't going to be there because it took a certain amount of time for the engines to spool up and start uh, taking you back into the air. So uh, six months learning to fly the jet aircraft, four engine, and reapplying the crew resource management element from you and a co-pilot to you, another pilot, a flight engineer, 
two navigators, an AEO, as it's called, an Air Electronics op Officer. The Air Electronics Officer would look after the back-end team, the two teams we've got called the dry and the wet team on the Nimrod. Uh, the dry team look after radar. Basically, anything that doesn't touch water is, is dry. Anything that touches water, i.e. sonar boys, is wet. And that's how the two teams... So, all of a sudden, I went from an aircraft where there was just me and an instructor to 13 of us on board this fuselage. Uh, and at the end of 42 Squadron, I went to 120 Squadron uh, on the front line, and that was my first operational frontline squadron at RAF Kinloss. Okay, and thereafter, I believe you went to do uh, a Masters in Aero Systems. I did. Um, I did three years at Kinloss, enjoyed it very much, got to go around the world, got to see some very good things, see some very nice locations like the Maldives and Iceland. But uh, at th the three-and-a-half-year point, it was decided that um, let, let's find something else to do. And an opportunity came up, which again fitted kind of with that test pilot thought in mind and another stepping stone. The Aerosystems course, not something a lot of people would be familiar with, but it's a master's course provided by the Royal Air Force and taught by the Royal Air Force at RAF Cranwell within what's called the Air Warfare Centre. And the, the point behind the Aerosystems course is to take people who have a technical knowledge but make that technical knowledge more applied such that one of the worst, there is often described as being a divide between engineers and air crew. Mm -hmm. And quite often engineers will use their techno speak and air crew will use their air crew speak. And it's trying to marry the two together because sometimes the air crew won't understand the complex technical things that the uh, engineers are talking about. Likewise, when, when a pilot's trying to say, well, there's a certain vibration. And when the engineer says, well, can you describe the vibration? No, it's a vibration. That's yeah. as technical as they get. It was to, it's basically designed to bridge that gap and provide an aircrew with engineering knowledge to allow you to work in trials, flight trials, to allow you to work in staff appointments where we procure equipment for the, for the military. Um, if you like, the, the knowledgeable user. So when you're discussing things with either um, higher commands or when you're discussing things with the civilians or when you're discussing things with companies, you're the person who actually understands all the things that have been talked about at the time. And it just seemed to fit perfectly with, with, uh, with my background and the kind of thing I was looking to do in the future. So with the flight, flight trials idea at the end of the course, yes, it seemed to make sense to go and do that course. It, uh, it covers things like aerosystems. Uh, so aerosystems covers radar, covers electro-optics. Um, flight trials obviously play a quite a big part in statistics. Because obviously when you do flight trials, you need to know statistics to be able to make some sort of sense out of the numbers that you crunch from the flight trial itself. Okay, and after doing your MSc at Cranwell, where next? Where were you posted? Well, that was a bit of a surprise, actually. Um, my natural assumption, I would end up back at Boscombe Down. Or I actually thought I would either end up at Boscombe Down or I'd end up at um, BAE Wharton, British Aerospace Wharton, just outside Blackpool thinking either I would go on to the new Nimrod, known as Nimrod MRA-4, and be part of the project team there, or I would be moved out of the Nimrod fleet, but into the Boscombe Flight Trials fleet. So I was working towards the end of the Aerosystems course, and all of a sudden I got a phone call from... We have in the Royal Air Force... All officers in the Air Force have someone called your desk officer. The uh, Navy have them called the pointers, but your desk officer is basically there in charge of your career and looks after your better interests and, and your aspirations to try and work out where best to place you. And my desk officer called me and said, um, we've got this position for you um, down at RAF Northolt. 
And I thought, oh, maybe it's 32 Squadron, maybe I'm going back to flying, maybe I'm going to go to the Queen's Flight, uh, or the Royal Squadron, it was renamed. Uh, and no, he said, no, no, it's at, at number one, AIDU. And I went, AIDU, oh, that sounds familiar. He said, well, you know the publications, when you see the, um, the en-route charts we use and all that stuff. He said, they make those. I went, oh, AIDU. And a- it turned out to be Aeronautical Information Documents Unit. These are the guys that make all the maps. It is, that's right. So yeah. we make the maps and basically flip. We call it the, 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 the name is Flip, Flight Information Publications. So that sounds quite intriguing, but why would they need an aerosystems person to do such a job? So I said, well, before I say yes, do you mind if I go down and have a look and see what it is that exactly they want and make sure that I marry up with their ideals and, and so on? So I went down there. And I walked into this quite a new building by Air Force standards, very new building, in fact, and met with the the wing commander boss of AIDU, and he went on to explain, along with my predecessor, who was also still there at the time, that the reason this was an aerosystems posting, because my boss then, or the who was to become my boss, the wing commander, was an aerosystems graduate, as was my predecessor. And it turned out that actually the paper side of the flight information publications was a very small part of the job for me, or would have been, should I accept the job. In fact, it was digital data was the reason Aerosystems had been set up down there. Obviously, um, and it's the same in civilian flying mostly, although a lot of airlines are slowly moving to a more digital world. In the RAF and in the military aviation as a whole, paper is still master. You must still have paper copies of all your maps, charts, booklets and things like that. But there is this increasing move towards the digital data world. And that's what I was needed to be there for. I was there to be looking after what we call mission planning systems, copy display systems and flight management systems. Now, having come from an aircraft called the Nimrod, which was formerly the Comet, uh, which was the best part of in as a legacy 50 years old. I had never had any experience of flying with any of these pieces of Mm -hmm. equipment, but I had learned about them on the Aerosystems course. And when I learned about these digital data systems, I thought, actually, you know, that suits me down to the ground. I like the look of that. Um, But it went on. Actually, the the job covered so many bases. For me, it was a flight commander tour, so I had people to look after. I had a staff appointment, if you like, which was I was responsible as the subject matter expert for digital data systems to the Royal Air Force, uh, seconded through the wing commander in charge of AIDU. So that was a staff appointment, if you like, as well, which encompassed me going off to a large number of different places, be it our procurement executive, as it was at the time, but it's become what is today known as the Directorate of Equipment Support, DE&S. Uh, or going into the centre of town to talk to our higher command and higher ranking officers to explain to them what it was we were trying to do. So it covered an awful lot of bases and also meant that I wasn't likely to, you know, if you can go into flight trials at Boscombe Down and if you went into a specific project, more likely than not that will be you for three years, that will be your only project. Whereas the AIDU post entitled me to being able to get um, into every project that was going on on the front line. So any new procurement, anything that involved digital data, I had to be part of it. Um, so it was brilliant. It, it suited me down to the ground. So as I, when I found this out about the job, sure enough, I phoned my desk officer and said, I'll take it. Uh, in July 2004, I arrived at RF Northolt and the story moved on. And you stayed there for how long? It was a bit longer than planned. Uh, the average RAF tour is 
uh, three years. I did four and a half years in post. It wasn't planned to be that way and did have some impact on my career. Uh, however, it did allow me to, me and my wife, to then set up a family home. We've got two lovely children now. It, it allowed me to have some stable time whilst most of my colleagues were getting very unstable lives, going in and out of theatre and different operations happening. Um, so, yes, it wasn't ideal doing four and a half years in the career perspective, but as a personal perspective, it actually worked very nicely for us as a family. Um, Were you flying during this time? I know you, you do love your flying. I do love my flying, but unfortunately not. It was a ground tour. It, it, the only flying I got to do was anything... What I did try and do was use my aircrew network to try and get flying, basically to get air experience flying. And actually, it wasn't so much more for me, but my troops... Because the troops at Aeronautical Information Documents Unit, AIDU, are called air cartographers. A very small trade group, the smallest trade group the Royal Air Force has. And the only trade group that doesn't go anywhere else, the only place that trade group can be, is number one AIDU. It can't go around to things like RF Bryce Norton or mm -hmm. Lossy Mouth or Lucas. It can only be in one place at one time. And what I wanted to ensure is while they were making the flight information publications, they had an awareness of what happened on the flight deck. So I'd phone my friends on Hercules, or I'd phone my friends at, um, at Valley, or I'd phone friends at, at um, RF Witten and say, look, you know, can, can you take me and some of my troops flying, please? Me for my own sanity and my troops to give them a flavour of what happens on the yeah. front line. So, um, thankfully, that, that's what we managed to do. So, I managed to get a number of flights over the years I was there. Uh, but, no, it was very much a ground tour. So I suppose after four and a half years, you wanted to get a posting back into somewhere that would allow you to fly? Indeed. Well, to be fair, I probably got... I, I wanted to get back into flying from about a year and a half into the AIDU post. And that was very much the aspiration of my boss at the time as well. He understood that I needed to get back to flying. What happened at AIDU? I was actually there at... Um, if any of my former troops and colleagues are listening, they may not agree because it was, it was a stressful time at one point, but there was large changes made to AIDU whilst I was there. And it changed very much from being a unit that not many people seem to think about whilst we were there to being quite at the forefront of what we do. And I was quite pleased of that change. I was quite pleased that aircrew learned to interact with it more. So I did feel like I had an important role to do there, and actually staying that length of time ensured that I got to see through all the projects that I'd started. So I didn't leave thinking, oh, I've left this to do, I've left that to do. It, I think I left behind a, a much stronger unit. But I did all the time think, I've got to get back to flying. Um, at the time, it seemed likely I was always going to head back to Kinloss and, and pick up again back on the Nimrod, which um, both me and the the wife were very much happy with. We were ready to do that, ready to move back up there. And as I said, it was a place I loved to live. Mm -hmm. So actually living up there with a the family really attracted me. But uh, as things went on, there was different problems occurring in the Nimrod fleet. And, you know, for example, everyone's familiar with the crash that occurred in September 2006, which was a very sad time for the fleet uh, out in Afghanistan. That affected matters and, and resulted in me staying a bit longer at AIDU. Uh, but one day, my desk officer phoned up and said, right, we think we're going to be able to get you on this course at Kinloss, uh, but there's nothing guaranteed because I'm having to make some uh, different arrangements. And I said, that's fine, sir, that's fine. I said, but, you know, I've asked every desk officer uh, prior to yourself, you know, about the possibility of me going across to Rotary. And I just wondered, what do you think? Do you think I could possibly go across to Rotary? 
And his predecessor had been quite quick in saying, sorry, Stu, it's not the right time, not the right place. Um, you know, I've got too many people doing the same thing. I need you to stay where you are, or I need you to go back to the Nimrod. As it happened, I managed to, it would appear I managed to ask, managed to ask it the perfect window of opportunity. So he, he ummed and he yard and he said on the phone, well, he said, you know, that might work out. And I straight away said, oh, sir, stop there, stop there, you're going to get my hopes up now. You know, I've asked the question, if you want, you know, go away and have a think and, and come back to me in a week's time and tell me if, it's, if, if it really is a certain possibility or if it's really something I should just forget about and worry about getting back to Kinloss. And sure enough, on his, on his word, he phoned me in a week's time and said, this will work, you. This will work. I think you can go rotary. Um, so that was around about um, late, that was the latter part of 2007. So he said, um, I, I haven't got any slots on courses straight away. So he said, if you're happy, I'll leave you at AIDU for a little longer. Uh, but we'll get you into RAF Shawbury's helicopter training school as, as soon as we can. And I said, thanks very much, Charles. So I continued the job, continued with my projects at uh, AIDU with a view to thinking, right, in the next year or so, I'm, I'm going to find myself at, at a new position here. Great. And I'm going to be going down the channel um, I'd love to go down because always knowing that I couldn't now make it down the fast jet channel that the rotary channel seemed to be the uh, one that really attracted me specifically going off to, to fly things like the Chinook uh, which was an aircraft again when it, you, you saw it flying when I was a little boy and thought wow what an amazing aircraft that is so um, it, it took only a year and a half actually from that point to find someone to succeed me at AIDU uh, hand over the role to him and in January 2009, I found myself over here at RAF Shawbury in the Defence Helicopter Flying School, uh, starting a course as a, what, how old would I have been, 32, on a course with um, 12 other young students. I think I was the oldest by about eight years. The average age of the course students was 23. We had two uh, young lads within the first month of our course were 21. Um, so I was very much the... Um, the avuncular figure on, on the course, I think you could possibly describe me, trying to keep up in fitness exercises and uh, the various other yep. adventurous training we did. I never could keep up, so I just accepted that I was always going to be at the back during the, uh, the long-distance runs. But, uh, yeah, sure enough, it turned out to be the perfect place for me to be. And here we are, what, 14 months later? 18 months, actually. 18 months. 18 months later. Uh, have now completed the course. Only just? Only just within the last week, uh, graduated, and the Squirrel and the Griffin flying together are simply the best flying I've done in my military career to date. Yeah. It's, it suits me, helicopter flying. It seems to suit my temperament. It seems to suit my ability. And very much looking forward now to moving on to the Puma at RAF Benson. You've got your posting down to Benson, yeah? That's right. You've got that sorted now. So obviously with the course now finished, I'm going to go off and do a little bit of leave. Uh, looking to move down to Benson in the, the next couple of months to start the course at, on the Puma. Where, um, where will that take you with Pumas? Well, it, it's currently it, it's on what they call uh, an operational reset, uh, is the terminology. Obviously, the Chinook has been in theatre, well, you, if you look at the facts, the Chinook has been in theatre since the Falklands War, uh, in a theatre somewhere or other, uh, but mainly, obviously, Iraq and uh, Afghanistan latterly. It has been there constantly. The Merlin has just now gone into theatre as well. The Puma actually isn't in any operational theatre at the moment because it's, it's just come back from Iraq after Iraq closed last year. And 
it's taking the opportunity to, to reset, in other words, retraining its crews and re-equipping. Re the Puma's quite an old aircraft now, and it's about to undergo a uh, what we call the Mark II upgrade. So it's going to get new engines, it's going to get uh, a new front um, glass cockpit in the, uh, for the pilots, and very much going to be a new aircraft when it comes out at the end of its upgrade. So once that upgrade is complete, it will then be fit to serve in Afghanistan in hot and high conditions. That's obviously the critical problem, is hot and high conditions. Yep. Um, but what Puma's main use is at, is at the moment is training the army, preparing the army to go into Afghanistan and work with the Chinooks, uh, Merlins of the Air Force, and the Sea Kings, and Lynxes of the Navy and the Army, respectively. So the Puma is in Kenya, doing hot and high work with the Army, training the Army, preparing them for operations in, in Afghanistan. So that will be a place I will be going to regularly each year in my, in my uh, tour okay. on the Puma. Cool. And thereafter, where do you see yourself ending up? That's a very good question. Not uh, planned yet. Uh, I think... I think instructing now is what attracts me more than test piloting. Now that so much of my career has, has effectively passed me by, I, I need to decide very quickly, I think, where I want to be and what niche I'd like to go into. Previously, doing the instructor, then the test pilot and, and such like would have been perfectly possible when I first entered the Air Force. I, I don't think both are a possibility. I mean, people would argue otherwise. But I think I need to decide for my career and for my family life which is the best way to go and I think now when I look at it with open eyes I think instructor really attracts me coming going to Benson doing the frontline uh, job on the Puma then coming back here to Shawbury in a few years time to do what is called central flying school helicopters mm -hmm. CFSH and become a QHI a qualified helicopter instructor I think it attract it, it, it again it suits my personality I think you'd make a good uh, instructor having, well uh, having it with me on the simulator indeed, this morning having taught you some hovering yeah. in the uh, in the Griffin sea pit which you were very good at thank you hasten to add obviously uh, a pure natural um so, yeah, I think that suits my mentality. And, it, again, there's so many avenues opened up by instructor. Would I then stay here at Shawbury and instruct here? Or would I just come here to do the course and go back to Benson to do instruct on the Puma? That's an open question, I think. Um, it's more important, to get, I think it'll be to get that instructor tick and see where life takes me and, and probably reset uh, what it is I want to do with the future. Excellent. Okay, well, best of luck for the future. Thank you very much. And uh, thank you for looking after me in my time here. <laughs> no problems at all. a brilliant time. Thank you very much. That's fine. Okay. Thanks again to Flight Lieutenant Stu Walker. I had a, a great couple of days down at RF Shawbury, and I hope you enjoyed listening to the podcasts as much as I enjoyed making them. Anyway, don't forget you can support the podcast in a small way by buying your aviation books and DVDs, or indeed anything, via the links to Amazon on the Flying Podcast website. I get a few pennies from every sale and the funds go towards paying to keep the podcast on air, so to speak. Well, that's it for episode 29. If you have any comments, suggestions for future episodes, or if you'd like to take part, you can email me on steve at flyingpodcast.co.uk. And don't forget you can follow me on Twitter or Facebook by searching for Flying Podcast, all one word, or click on the Twitter and Facebook links on the Flying Podcast website. Thanks for listening. I'll speak to you again soon.